is Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. In May we published episode 51 on pirates and this July we published episode 56, Highwaymen. To complete the Bandit trilogy today we present Outlaw. Literally a person who is placed, is decreed, is judged to be outside the protection of the law. Be they a criminal, a dissident or a freedom fighter. If you are an outlaw, anyone can have a pop at you, bring you in or even kill you with impunity. And so, as is often the case, an anti-hero is born. The glamour of various outlaws has been burnished by stories portrayed in books and movies. And yet the reality, as we discussed in those two previous episodes on banditry, is often sordid violence, cruelty and grim demise. Criminal outlaws enjoy the thrill and status of being outside the law. Lawlessness is their oxygen. They have crossed the Rubicon, committed crimes for which there is no option to return to civil society, and so they become outlaw. And the outlaw ranges from some desperate fellow poaching a few rabbits from the king's estate to, in 1815, the Congress of Vienna sanctioning the once mighty Emperor Napoleon as outlaw, fit only for death. This and all other episodes of Bloody Violent History are available on Amazon Music Podcasts. You can find the link on our website and in the show notes. Jamie, before we get on to your favourite cowboy movies... Give me your take on the myth and psychopathy of the outlaw. We've got to start with Napoleon, Tom, really, given that he was the greatest outlaw of them all in 1815. And he certainly fled the battlefield of Waterloo and left an empty carriage behind with his diamond-encrusted orders and his cape and everything else. So he, he, was, he was quite an outlaw. And also he had a practice of putting leeches or having leeches applied to his hemorrhoids. And that should certainly be outlawed. That's a nice way to start the podcast. <laughs> a nice image. Actually, I don't know about being outlawed. You should get a medal for that. I and, think the leech should get a medal. He, and he certainly died in grim circumstances in 1821. It was always said that he might have been poisoned with arsenic by royalist doctors, but at the autopsy there were seven doctors and they all said he had stomach cancer, but who knows. But the demise of any outlaw, anyone made an outlaw, is often fairly grim and desperate. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about, is that the folklore of the myth way outpaces, surpasses the reality, the, the desperate reality of their lives. It's normally a hail of bullets or to be hanged. That's exactly how, 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 it, how it goes. Well, let's start with somebody who's well known in, uh, and has been glamorised in the movies, Ned Kelly. Well, Ned Kelly was operating at the same time as a bush ranger in Australia, uh, probably Australia's most famous 
uh, folk legend and, and, and bushwhacker, or rather bush ranger, uh, at the same time that there were bushwhackers and, and, and outlaws in America. So it, it, it's that period of lawlessness, that period of exploration, of, of ranches being developed, of gold being discovered, of banks being set up in, in far-flung towns. And Ned Kelly was no exception to that. Uh, his father uh, had been deported, been sent to Tasmania uh, as, a, as a prisoner uh, from Ireland for stealing two pigs. So that was the sort of Irish community into which Ned Kelly was, was born, uh, in, in the same way that so many American outlaws came from that background as well, as they spread into the Wild West and, and joined the pioneers. And, uh, yeah, you're right, he was uh, hanged in 1880, and, as an example, Billy the Kid in America died in 1881. And Jesse James in 1882. And Billy the Kid was certainly of, of Irish ancestry, and he was Henry McCarthy originally, before he became uh, William Bonney, and then Billy the Kid and various other names that he, that he earned. So this... Was he Billy the Kid because he was young or because he just looked very babyish? I, I think he looked very babyish and, 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 had a, and was young as well. And so he, he was given that, that nickname. But back to Ned Kelly, it, it, again, it's this thing of always ending badly and the, the, the psychopathy underneath it all, uh, underneath the myth... Is, is far more grim. Ned Kelly and his gang ended up robbing banks and, in the end, was tracked down to Stringybark Creek, a great Aussie name, and uh, killed three policemen and was eventually hunted down and killed. But what stands out there is that his gang all made... I mean, he was executed... Yes, he, he was executed, but his, he was wounded, actually, in the, in the hands and, and, and feet. But there were gang members who were killed. One was shot in the groin, but they had made this homemade armour, uh, supposedly on the lines of, of, of Chinese armour, because one of the gang members apparently had lived near a Cantonese settlement and had seen this in some sort of parade. So they made this homemade armour, and it, it plainly didn't work. <laughs> It didn't stop Ned Kelly being captured and, and eventually hanged. So it, it often ended in a, in a shootout or at the end of a hangman's rope. Absolutely. OK, so while all of this is going on, there's an item of headwear that becomes very prominent in the States. Well, we're still talking about a form of armour here because in 1849, on the instructions of Edward Cook, uh, spelt Coke, the younger brother of the Earl of Leicester, uh, Locke and Company in London. Hatmakers. Yep, they are hatmakers. Uh, and they handed to Thomas Bowler the contract, basically, to invent protective headgear. Uh, and th this was needed, really, for the gamekeepers and estate managers of the Cook estate, Holcomb Hall in Norfolk, I think it is, yeah. because they had problems with poachers, they obviously had problems with smugglers on the coast there. And so this headgear was useful for confronting those poachers, but also for, for riding horses, because they found that wearing top hats was dangerous uh, on because of low hanging branches. So the bowler hat was perfect. 
And well, it tended to stay on, whereas the top hat, I mean, when you fall off a horse, it just comes flying off. Exactly. So the bowler hat became known as the, the, the bowler after Thomas Bowler, and also as, as the cook or the coke. So I guess you could have been called a, a coke head wearing a <laughs> bowler hat. But, but it became the headgear in the Old West because it was used by railwaymen, it was used by law enforcement guys, it was worn by cowboys a lot. And also it's it's uh, visually quite a, a uniform sign, you know, I mean, in more recent times in the City of London there was a certain type of city gent who would wear a black bowler hat and that was very much the uniform. Well, and guards officers as well and, and doctors. You we say, still uh, have to wear a bowler it, hat on certain days. Yes, so, so the, the bowler hat became a key bit of headgear, far more important than the Stetson or the high crown Wybrin cap um, hat in, 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 in the Old West. And some people say it, it's the hat that won the West. But it, it was worn by outlaws, cowboys and law enforcement officers alike. So it became a key bit of protective headgear. Apparently the first person to wear a top hat, which was obviously some time before the bowler, went out in his top hat and he was arrested for, uh, I don't know whether it's because they thought it was obscene or he was trying to create some kind of grievous offence. Yeah. They got taller and taller. But the bowler hat was very practical. And it, and it does lead me to my favourite uh, Laurel and Hardy joke, which I've got to say now, which is the only joke I've ever laughed at from the 1930s, where, where Laurel goes, um, my, my uncle died when he fell through a trapdoor. And Hardy goes say was he building a house or something and laurel goes no they were hanging him so that does link outlaws because often they were hanged and they wore bowler hats sometimes <laughs> your so sense of humor oh there's there's the link don't blame me blame laurel and hardy <laughs> yes oh, laurel and hardy <laughs> right a great english export i do believe indeed we have talked about how Ned Kelly died, but it is worth just mentioning some of the others quickly and how, again, this, this, this myth, this folklore has grown up, but actually the reality is often very different. So you take the 1881 death of Billy the Kid and it's fascinating how that transpired because he, well, we're going to talk about him later, but he was tracked down by Pat Garrett, who was obsessed with, with getting hold of him because Billy the Kid had escaped his prison where he was about to be hanged a few days later, and he managed to escape. And so Pat Garrett thought, and he had killed two deputies in, in doing this, so Pat Garrett was determined to track him down, tracked him down to Fort Sumner in New Mexico. And shot him in a darkened room. There was no gunfight out in the open. He was just gunned down uh, without a chance in, in, in a darkened room in a, in a friend's ranch house. So that was Billy the Kid. What happened with uh, Jesse James? Well, Jesse James was shot by one of his own gang members, Bob, Bob Ford, who wanted to claim the $10,000 reward uh, for turning him in or shooting him. So Jesse James was actually not shot down in flames, as the Cher song would have it. He was shot in the back of the head by Bob Ford, one of his gang members, as he dusted a picture. And the Ford brothers actually wired the governor 
of Missouri to say, we've done this, um, we want the reward. And they, in turn, were, were captured and, and, uh, and hanged for murder because, obviously, the governor didn't want to pay out the 10,000 bucks. And, actually, that, that's the outlawry in, in England um, had a definition in Saxon times that if you were in pursuit of an outlaw uh, as a gen- citizen and they were defending themselves or running away, you could kill them. But once you'd captured them and were taking them to the king or the king's man, if you killed them then, that was against the law. You know, that was, it was then down to the king to decide what to do with them. Well, it's interesting that in 1881, you had the gunfight at the OK Corral. You know, there, the local sheriff tried to have the key figures, such as Doc Holliday... And Wyatt Earp. Uh, and Wyatt Earp. Uh, charged with murder, but the judge threw it out. So uh, th- there was this very grey area in terms of bounty hunting because there's the myth, but then there's the, also the reality and the sheer psychopathy and the violence and the cruelty that many of these outlaw gangs showed uh, to- towards their victims. And then we go on to 1908 and the demise of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, that movie with Robert Redford and... Who was the other one? Was it Paul Newman? Paul Newman, yeah. Yes. Um, was fantastic. And, I mean, they were painted as absolute heroes and went out in a blaze of bullets. But th- this is one of the things about outlaws. Because they've been mythologised by movies, because you get the most glamorous actresses and actors involved in making those movies, look at Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, they've been mythologised and they've always had glamorous actresses playing... That was Faye playing. Dunaway... Yes, I mean, the most beautiful woman in Hollywood. So you, you, you're always going to get this uh, sort of sympathy vote for, for, for the bad guys, for the outlaws. And because there's this counterculture has, has grown up, because it's this idea of pushing back against authority, pushing back against the law and the system, sticking it to the man, this is why outlaws have come to represent freedom rather than representing violence and, and barbarity. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were eventually uh, killed by Bolivian cavalry, it's believed, when they fled, tried to set up a new life down in Argentina, robbed a payroll and, 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 um, and ended up being gunned down. And Bonnie and Clyde were taken out by the G-men, by the FBI, were they? Well, they, by, I think it was local police in Louisiana, and there were six of them. But they emptied everything they had. I mean, each of those six policemen, they had a, they had a pistol, they Actually, had an automatic they had rifle. Yeah, they did. And, yeah. and they had shotguns. And they emptied everything into the car. I think the car was hit by about 130 rounds. I think Bonnie and Clyde were, were, were hit by, by about you know, over 100 rounds. So it was pretty desperate, pretty grim. But, but they had a, a, a dreadful sort of record of, of murder and mayhem on the, on the highways of America. They got their just desserts. They probably did. But that really is, is how outlaws end, just like highwaymen, just like pirates. It, it, it's not a happy ending, you know, at the end of their lives. And, Jamie, what about the myth of resistance? I think we've mentioned this, but but a lot of those outlaws, certainly from the late 19th century, derived from the days of the American Civil War. So that it grew out of that myth, and we're going to come on to people like John Brown and Jesse James. But if you look at Jesse James, he grew out of that background. You look at the 
people who started by hunting down fugitive slaves, like Quantrell's raiders, a guy called William Quantrell, who became a colonel in the Confederate Army, and he became a guerrilla leader. But Jesse James was attached to him and attached to um, Bloody Bill Anderson, who was another uh, killer, another guerrilla leader. But, but they came from that background and they had incredibly violent incidents linked to them. Uh, there was one called the San Rail uh, Train Massacre where Quantrell's men, Bloody Bill Anderson, killed uh, up to two dozen unarmed Union soldiers on a train in Missouri and scalped them and then killed another hundred later in the day. So th- this, this was their standard fare. And, and if you want a, a great example of uh, fictional, although there are, is some fact involved in it, read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. It is the most hair-raising book, brilliant book, about outlaws on the run. And the country they're in is, is described by him in full poetic terms, but the individuals are extremely alarming, brutal and fascinating characters it is a brilliant book and and what's interesting that period the 19th century late 19th century there was so much tension and rivalry between the different ranches and between the lawmen who were often criminals themselves and were were linked to different factions you look at the lincoln county wars uh, that involved billy the kid and 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 the sheriffs who had different allegiances there and the ranchers who had different allegiances and different uh, merchant contacts in town. And so it was all incredibly corrupt and very, very violent. And so law and order, you just made it up as you went along. And the theme which has run through our other bandit episodes of post-war, you've got men trained and abilities to use weapons and availability of weapons. And There are over half a million deaths in the American Civil War, but it also left an awful lot of men roaming around the countryside. And it was a very brutalised society. And you throw in all these elements of the Native Americans, the, the, the railways spreading west, gold prospecting, all of these things, the setting up of ranches... Uh, you're going to get a huge influx of of violence. You're going to get a lot of competition. And as you say, you add the American Civil War, you add the influx of of migrants from Ireland who came after the Great Famine there, and they all went into the interior. Unlike the Italians, who really stayed near New York or within 50 to 100 miles. Well, because the restaurants were better. (laughs) (laughs) but 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 it's fascinating that people like pat garrett for example that the the man who gunned down billy the kid he wasn't just a lawman he he was a customs guy he he was also a barman i mean they all had multiple jobs multiple multiple bowler hats multiple bowler hats multiple interests multiple business concerns so you can see that the, the, the tension and the, 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 the possibility of violence was always there. Like Jimmy McSporran, who was that fellow on the island in Scotland. Uh, Gear. He had more jobs than anyone else in the country. I think he was the policeman, the postman, vet, <laughs> medic. Yes, and, and, and as you said, when the violence occurred, it tended to be very brief and at very short range. So you, when you get the gunfight at the OK Corral... The, 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 the actual encounter lasted 30 seconds, left three dead, 
and the, the, the guns were fired at six feet range. So, and we're still talking about it today. And we're still talking about it today. And and uh, again, it's been totally mythologized by by Hollywood. Okay, well, that's enough of myth and psychopathy for the moment. Let's go back into the mists of time. The classical world, Jamie, what's going on with the outlaw then? It's worth going back to that period because it it shows that banishment, exile, uh, being an outlaw, becoming an outlaw, it, it was all part of the power of the state or part of the democracies. Athens, for example, would exile people, would ostracise people. You look at people like Themistocles, who was exiled. And in a way, for all these people who were exiled and declared outlaws, it was also a way of, of avoiding being murdered because there were so many political murders. There was so much skullduggery. So Themistocles uh, was was banished. Quite often you'd be banished for 10 years, but Themistocles ended up sort of fleeing to Persia eventually because he, he, he thought that uh, he was going to be killed uh, because the Spartans wanted to murder him. So he, he disappeared. Now, banishment allows for, for um, a restoration at some point, doesn't it? And I mean, if your political fortunes change, uh, you might, well, as they did for Cicero, you might find that you can come back. Yes, Rome had three different levels of banishment. I mean, the, 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 the sort of lower classes tended to be sent to hard labour or working as, as galley slaves, for example. But if you were higher up the, 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 the sort of food chain, you tended to be banished. And you could be banished for any length of time. You could be sent to a remote island. And Cicero was banished and then was forgiven and came back, but was eventually murdered. So it wasn't always a way out of being murdered. But you well, often... he, he wasn't murdered. He was prescribed. And that allowed him to be killed without other person being convicted of murder well that that's the thing so so in a way he was an outlaw you 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 could say that but he he was beyond the protection of the law and, and this is what happened to so many people you know you you, you see the the tiberius killing people so banishing people and then killing them uh, killing the the children or grandchildren of of of, of rivals so you you often got this going on and and you got these different levels of banishment. You you weren't allowed once you were banished. No one was allowed to give you shelter or food or firewood, uh, on pain of death. I mean, it was it was pretty draconian in in what happened, and you had to get out pretty damn quickly. Yeah, it was complicated, though, wasn't it? Because uh, you know a Roman citizen would be banished outside Rome or or the, or the Italian peninsula but if they went to live somewhere else they would be allowed to do that and in some cases they were allowed to keep their property or keep their citizenship and in others not yes so cicero had his property taken away and 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 a statue of a goddess erected in the grounds it was taken over uh, and and he was expunged i mean he he had a terrible time and and this is what happens you just found yourself on the wrong side of the politics of the day, and you could be in a lot of trouble. Do you think they should have um, exile and banishment in America when one one president or another gets into trouble? <laughs> well, they just go and sit 
in Florida. Well, uh, yeah, sitting on Palm Beach is the equivalent of exile. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, until, wait until Trump comes back. He's going he's gonna to be very annoyed. So, so, so you do get this. You, you, you get these different levels. And so, again, all the way through history, it, it occurs. The, the other thing that happens in history is you do get this idea of political exile for a group of people. So, so if you're out of favour... You can be pushed to the margins. So this is partly where the whole resistance sort of idea comes from. If you look at religious groups or sects or cults, you, you take the Essenes in, in the Holy Land who, who live near the Dead Sea. They were outcasts from Jerusalem. They didn't like the temple system, the priest system in, in Jerusalem. It was Jesus... One, well, well it's always been rumoured that he that he might have been. And you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and you look at what the Essenes believed. They believed in 12 apostles. They believed in baptism in the River Jordan, the, those sorts of things. So they, they definitely, Christianity, sort of plucked ideas from, from those different radical sects or radical groups from that period. But the Essenes were, in a way, religious outlaws further on in time um, to France, you've got the Cathars, haven't you? Well, you've, you've got the whole of Europe. I mean, anything, any of these sort of group, these Reformation groups, the old Protestant groups that were rising up, the Taborites, for example, in Bohemia, or the, the, the Hussite movement, uh, all these groups, uh, these, these non-conformist groups, were very much considered outlaws and could be butchered. They always ended up being butchered on the top of hills, hillsides by, by government forces or by papal forces. There's quite a difference between, your, you know, your average criminal uh, going around doing his business and then becoming an outlaw and a group of people or a person that's sort of high up suddenly finding himself on, on the wrong political side and being outlawed. Even, uh, you know, the Knights Templar, they, they had a very sticky end once they'd become too wealthy. Yes, and, and this is really the same thing with banishment, going back to the Greeks and the Romans, that, that if you fell foul of the political system, if you had too much money that people wanted to get their hands on, I mean, human behaviour, as we've said many times, doesn't change. So when you look at the Templars eventually being wiped out and the uh, Grand Master of the Templars being burnt at the stake... Um, 1314? Yeah, in Paris... Those are the sort, and they were persecuted. They were hunted down, and they certainly didn't have the protection of the law. So, through the Middle Ages, out in say the Ottoman Empire, you got groups that had different views, didn't like the central authority, like the deviant dervishes, for example. Who the 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 one thing that um, sort of picked them out from the crowd was the fact they were hugely into body piercings, uh, particularly of their penises. So you, you can see yeah, that didn't lowering go, the tone that didn't didn't go down. At, I'm just being historical. <laughs> Anything to talk about the Prince Albert? Yeah, this was pre Prince Albert, but uh, without any anaesthetic too. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. The big nail. <laughs> but the. But, but they were considered outcasts. They certainly put themselves at odds with the authorities. And once you do that, it becomes easier to persecute them, easier to persecute these groups and, and consider them outlaws beyond the law, beyond acceptability. All right, Jamie, let's 
return to England, Merry England, in the Anglo-Saxon period, the 8th century, and references to outlaw. The concept of outlaw, just as it did in so many other places, sort of embedded itself. It came throughout European culture, through the Anglo-Saxons, through the Norse tradition. In Norse tradition, you got utlager, you got outlaws, and you got people who are called men of the woods, people who are banished from communities and could be killed for breaking the law, for, for, for stealing, for committing crimes. And that was one of the key ways of controlling society. And the Anglo-Saxons had exactly the same. They had this concept that, that came in, uh, you know, first seen in the English legal text, as you said, in, in the 8th century. So it had been around, the concept had been around a long time. And clearly um, the idea, to me, seems that, I mean, in those days they didn't have prisons and they didn't have an organisation to run prisons. So the option would be either to kill the person, you couldn't kill everyone that committed a crime because you'd end up with nobody. So this was the sort of the lesser punishments that were available. I think banishment, and, and there was this belief that, that people would often die if they were unsupported, if they weren't part of the community. So no longer your problem, sort of thing. Yes, so it could be a sentence of, sentence of death. But then you started getting this, this concept of resistance that we have mentioned. And, and once you get this concept of resistance, then you get the folklore and legend coming in as well. So you see leaders such as Alfred, Alfred the Great. 849 of, to 899. Yes, king of, of, of the Anglo-Saxons in Wessex. And uh, he led the resistance against the Vikings and he hid out in the marshes of Athelney in Somerset. And this legend burnt the cakes, all these things. And that's that fed the fact that we all know the stories of Alfred the Great is because of his resistance and because he was being hunted by the Vikings and, and set up this resistance group, this guerrilla band, and eventually raised armies. So if you're on uh, Ready Steady Cook today and your souffle flops, you become outlaw. <laughs> sent into the sent into the hills, sent to chased Ath by people with spatulas, <laughs> sent to Athelney. <laughs> so you do, see, so you, you see, you got that tradition. You got that tradition of of, of resistance, and this was uh, then fed by the by Herod the Wake, the great guerrilla leader, the great resistor to the Norman conquest. And after the Battle of Hastings 1066, you got the nobleman, the Anglo-Saxon nobleman, Herod the Wake, who, who based his guerrilla campaign from the Isle of Ely. So that started. And the, the, the Normans spent an inordinate amount of effort and time trying to track him down, trying to flush out this very effective resistance and there's one story, they sent up an army and they had a witch who showed her bare ass towards the, the gorillas. She was <laughs> kept in a cage and started shouting spells and everything else. So the Normans tried everything. Did it work? I don't know. Well, Heroin disappeared. A legend has it he was murdered by Norman knights, but he, he, he vanished and no one knows. And the Normans then went on to, to, to commit terrible crimes. I mean... We talk about the Russians in Ukraine today, but I mean the harrying of the North was was the most terrible episode in 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 England's history, and there were villages, towns that were 
completely wiped out, just erased. But back to witches. I mean, my when I was a child, if you had a wart on your finger, you would ring up this number with the witch at the other end and she would think about you or do something. And weirdly, a few weeks later, the wart would disappear. In your childhood? Yeah, in my time, we had those... Uh, it, it operated somewhere down in, in Cornwall. And uh, occasionally, it was normally because the dog had a wart and licked one of the faces and you'd end up with a wart on your thumb or something. And this witch would be rung up. They didn't. You didn't have to see them even. And it was passed on from, from uh, you know, father to daughter and, and vice versa. <laughs> Had anyone thought of a doctor? Maybe Heroid... What was he called? Heroid? <laughs> Heroid the Wake. Heroid the Wake. Maybe he was just a giant wart. That's why I had to flash her big bare ass <laughs> at, at him. And it's like, oh, he shriveled I, up. I just think, really, really, Tom, I think your family should have considered a doctor. Uh, <laughs> Much more effective. You've got to keep the witches employed. <laughs> Another witch gave me my grandmother's parking fairy. <laughs> That's even more useful. Anyone in your family putting in a ducking stool? <laughs> no, you have to read the Lancashire witches for that. Anyway, anyway so, so you've got that sort of resistance legend growing. Uh, and, and then there were others. There was William Wallace in, in, in Scotland. Uh, that of course fed in. He was he was outlawed, which meant that anyone could kill him if they came across him, if they discovered him. He had humiliated the English nobles who brought their armies to attack him on behalf of Edward I, Edward Longshanks, uh, from England in September 1297, and so of course he was loathed and disliked, and eventually he was captured, uh, defeated, captured, and brought to London and executed. As a traitor, by that stage he had he had surpassed being an outlaw. He was a traitor, and was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Yes, they fried his giblets. So, so, so that goes back a long way. I mean, hanging, drawing, quartering was still being used in the in the seventeenth century. So, and then of course Mel Gibson plays him. Was it Mel Gibson? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? In that movie. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, yeah but then Mel Gibson turned out. <laughs> not to be quite such a hero yeah, himself. Yeah. Did he say you have nothing to lose but your acting career? <laughs> so, yeah. So that, Mad that, Max, he was so, great in that. Yeah, indeed. So, so that was William Wallace, and all these things fed into the mythologizing of the outlaw, and that, of course, leads on to the great uh, men in men in tight story that you love to tell. Well, Robin Hood, he is the archetypal English hero. And it's good versus evil. It's the small man sticking it to the, to the man. Yeah, King John, uh, King John, the sheriff of Nottingham. But, but, but you can see how all these stories of, of William Wallace, of Heroud the Wake, of Alfred the Great, fed into that story. And, and the great thing about the Robin Hood legend or myth is that it involves a bad king, King John, and it has Richard the Lionheart, uh, John's older brother, being put on a pedestal because he was the great king of England, although he only visited England for about one year of his life. And Well, that's the way to keep your, you know... Keep your reputation popular. intact, and then yeah. die, die early. Uh, but, but he was out on crusade, so the whole crusade legend can come in, the idea of poaching the idea of joining um, Robin Hood's gang by having a fair fight with him. So this idea of equality, this idea of fairness, 
this idea of fighting the, the oppressor, of resisting, just became part of the, of the outlaw legend. And, and it's I, not just sort of myth and movies. Uh, we're, we talk endlessly, even today, about the Magna Carta and the push and pull between uh, the king and his barons. And this is really... Uh, stories about when the barons are pushing back against uh, a bad king. Yes, and you can see how so many elements of, of, of the Magna Carta end up in Bill of Rights around the world. I mean, it enters the legal system, and, and so it's, it's easy to construct an outlaw legend around those historical times. And question, Jamie, so if I wanted to join Robin Hood's gang, what did I have to do? Oh, you would probably have had to have a wrestling match or, or, or fight with the staff. Uh, watch the movies. <laughs> there was plenty of cheating going on. <laughs> Fry a tuck. Yeah, or eat a lot of food. And then sit on your enemy. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that, that, that's Merry England for you. That's really the, 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 the backdrop to the outlaw legends that came later on. Now we move to the Wild West in America. What can you tell me about John Brown? John Brown was a key figure in not, not just myth and legend, but actually in American history and what transpired, what followed after the sort of raiding he did. He was a huge abolitionist. He believed in the abolition of slavery and he believed in direct action and guerrilla action against those who promoted or had slaves on plantations. He, he wanted to see the end of it. And he thought that simply coming up with compromises... I mean, for example, in 1850, there was the Fugitive Slave Act, so slaves could be pursued. Those who were in non-slaving states, the free states, had to hand back their slaves uh, on pain of a person giving shelter to them, um, being fined $1,000. So he, he was against that sort of compromise, those sorts of deals. He so just the only way the to... slaves could uh, get, get their freedom was to go all the way to Canada, uh, British territory of Canada? Certainly, and yeah. the, the concept of the Underground Railway, the concept of, of slaves being contraband, that, that, that they were belonged, they were goods that belonged to the owner. So you've got this, this entire industry, not just keeping the slaves on plantations, but patrolling, stopping them escaping. And against that, you had the pushback. You had people like John Brown. So his sons were, were huge anti-slavers as well, and, and five of them went down to Kansas to help in that activity, and John Brown joined them. And this is where it all kicked off, because you then get the, the, the pro-slavers attacking Lawrence, uh, burning down hotels, um, doing a lot of damage, and attacking the abolitionists, attacking those who wanted to get rid of slavery. So John Brown responds, and in the same year, he led a raid with his guerrillas on Potawatomi and killed several people there. And so this tit-for-tat, this sort of killing, these sorts of things started to escalate. But his whole beef uh, was really, it was no good the North and the South sort of pussyfooting around this issue of slavery. He wanted action. Yes, and I think he probably believed that 
what he would do could well end in war, that, that he wanted a wider campaign. He wanted the North to take extreme action against the South. Well, certainly by the time of his death, which we'll come on to in a minute, that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted war. There was no peacetime solution. Yes, he became utterly radicalised by his experiences and uh, he started putting a lot more planning into what he did. I don't think he thought that piecemeal raids, ambushes, tit-for-tat killings would would do any good. And it's fascinating that so many of the characters from this period ended up later on having key roles during the American Civil War. Including Robert E. Lee? Including Robert E. Lee, and including people like Jesse James, who who were really on the other side of the argument and and led guerrillas against the Union and against Union forces. So so on both sides, you got these guerrilla groups becoming more and more barbaric in 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 their action. And and what's fascinating that after the American Civil War, the people like General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a key cavalry commander in the Southern forces. Uh, he was responsible for the Fort Pillow massacre during the American Civil War, which killed uh, the, the, his forces, just massacred 200 former slaves, Union soldiers. So uh, these sort of... T- and was he, that after the Civil War? That, 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 that was during the Civil War, the, yeah. the, 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 the Fort Pillow massacre. Yeah. Uh, but, but he became notorious after, after the Civil War because he became the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And Jesse James, he, he was not against dressing up as a, as, as a Klansman uh, to do his raids occasionally. And, and don't think white outfits with pointy white hats. If you look at the original Klan garments... It just shows the, the sort of devilment that was going on, the, the, the unpleasantness that was going on, because the, the, the Ku Klux Klan in those days, they, they had sort of devil horns on their heads, they had fangs. snaggle fangs yeah. and pom-pom noses and zodiac signs on their, on their yeah. multicoloured garments, uh, and they were a very fearsome lot. So you've got on one hand, you've got John Brown. On the other, you've got people like Jesse James. But John Brown was was key to this sort of antebellum tension and, and violence that was growing. And the catalyst, some say anyway, to the Civil War was what John Brown carried out at Harper's Ferry. In 1859, he'd been planning it a long time. And he led his men, probably about a couple of dozen, across the river with, with, with two of his sons. Both of those sons were killed in the raid. Eventually, they were surrounded. The local shopkeepers and militia surrounded them. He had taken hostages from local farms, including one of George Washington's descendants who had a had a farm nearby. And he was trying, capturing it because he wanted the armory and then he wanted slaves to join his, his revolution. Yes, he thought it would become a focal point for, for an uprising, for a general uprising, a slave revolt. He would have known his history, he would have known of other slave revolts over over time, over the centuries. Most of which didn't turn out very well. It didn't, but he believed, as, as all guerrilla leaders believe, that this was going to be the start of revolution. And it, it, it went bad. Uh, his, both his sons were killed, uh, he, one had gone out to surrender, uh, several of the others were killed, he was captured and hanged within a fortnight of, of his capture. And he was quite badly injured, but he was he was happy to be hanged if such a thing is... 
because he wanted the publicity for his cause, and that would include him being uh, turned into a martyr. Well, he had told his son, who was mortally wounded, die like a man. I'm not putting you out of your misery. You've got to die like a man. Uh, this is what he believed. It did no good for him and the other northerners, including Lincoln, to condemn the raid. All the South could hear was the growing peal of admiration for Brown, the champion of liberty, which came even from those who deplored what Brown the raider had done. You can see the South's point of view. He was a murderous old brigand who was out to overthrow them, and you can see the North's. He was a fearless crusader who wanted only to set black men free. Both views were true, and one can't blame the Southerners for believing that he represented the North in its true colours, or the North for believing, as one speaker put it, that whether his acts had been right or wrong, J.B. himself was right. The truth was that he'd fueled the passions of the wildest elements on both sides and convinced even the sensible and moderate people that the only answer was disunion or war. His trial, which began only a week after the raid, fulfilled Massavi's glummest fears. He was the poor old hero, so weak and wounded that he had to be toted into court on a cot, submitting to his fate with a Christian patience. In fact, he wasn't as poorly as he looked and could walk when he had to and he put on the performance of his life, telling him that he'd never asked for quarter, and if they wanted his blood, they could have it there and then, without the mockery of a trial. As to his defence, he was utterly unable to attend to it. My memory doesn't serve me. My health is insufficient, although improving. I am ready for my fate. I'll bet there wasn't a dry eye from Cape Cod to Cincinnati. The trial was a formality, or a farce, if you like. Much was made of the speed with which it took place, but if they'd given him until 1870 it would have made no difference, for there could be no question of his guilt or the penalty. His lawyers would have had him plead insanity, half his ancestors were balmy, you know, but the old fox wouldn't hear of it, and you know, if I'd been called to testify on the point, if I'd had to back him up, I know that in these pages I've frequently called him mad and lunatic and suggested his rightful place was in a padded cell, but that's just flashy talking. We all say such things without meaning that the object of our censure is seriously deranged. No, he wasn't mad. Read his letters, his speeches, the things he said to reporters, and take the word of one who knew him well. A fanatic, yes, a man driven by one burning idea, certainly. A fool in some things, perhaps, but never a madman. It wasn't a long trial, but seems to have had some interesting features. One of the prosecutors was too drunk to plead, they say, and t'other was the father of one of the men who'd murdered Bill Thompson on the bridge, which I'd have thought made for a nice conflict of interest, but I'm no lawyer. None of that, or the legal wrangling about jurisdiction and delays, was of the least importance. Only one thing mattered, and that was the bearing of the accused. That's what the world remembers, the brave old border soldier, calm, dignified and unflinching, rising gamely to speak with a chap supporting him either side, lying patiently on his cot as sentence of death was passed, closing his eyes in unconcern and pulling the blankets up beneath his chin. Even the most hard-bitten pro-slavers couldn't but admire the conscientiousness, the honour and the supreme bravery of the man. You may imagine what the good ladies of Concord and Boston thought and the fervour with which they wept and prayed for him. They made the mistake of giving him a month's grace before he was topped, which meant that all America could picture the gallant, lonely old martyr in his cell, worn with struggle but wonderfully cheerful, waiting with quiet courage for the end. 
It gave the wiser heads time for second thought. Some suggested that he should just be jailed or put in an asylum, for they knew the revulsion with which his execution would be greeted, not only in America, but the world. They knew that his martyrdom would only harden the resolve of the North to carry on his campaign and the determination of the South to resist. On the other hand, there were those who hoped that his death would hasten the rupture between North and South, with which they regarded as inevitable. Messavy's notion of a rescue occurred to others, by the way. There was a plot. But when J.B. heard of it, he wanted no part of it. He wanted to die, I'm sure of that. Because like the wiser heads, he could see clearly what it would lead to. The last note he wrote on the morning of his execution put it plain. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as now I think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed it might be done. They hanged him outside Charlestown, Virginia, on December the 2nd, before a great host of troops, among whom were John Wilkes Booth, who murdered Lincoln six years later, and Stonewall Jackson. He didn't kiss a little black child on his way to the gallows, as the sentimentalists like to believe. And according to uh, George MacDonald Fraser in his Flashman book, John Brown, when his sons uh, were did something wrong, instead of beating them, he made them beat him, which says something about the worrying in his brain. Yeah, and the guerrilla mindset. <laughs> there, there, yeah. there's, a, there's, there's a level of psychological warfare going on that he understood very well, even from that age. John Brown's body. OK, I'll save you the rest. Yeah, leave it to the professionals. Yeah. Well, he got a mention earlier, but now we must talk a little bit more about William Bonney, also known as Billy the Kid. And also known as Henry McCarthy, which was his birth name, the son of Irish migrants. Uh, I, I think he was born in New York, actually, and then moved to the interior, like so many. As as a criminal, what were his sort of, what were his skill? What was his well, skill base? Well, like so many of those so-called outlaws, they 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 started as cowboys. They started on ranches. He was brought in to act as a rancher and as a bodyguard to an English um, landowner called John Tunstall. And it, it seemed to work all right. But if you were setting him a ranch in those times, you were going to fall foul of rival ranches and rival businesses. So you got this massive factionalism going on uh, down in New Mexico, which is where he was based. He, he was thieving, cattle rustling. Uh, there, there were fights. He was a brawler. He, he, that's one of the reasons that Tunstall brought him in. He knew how to handle weapons, whether it was a pistol or a rifle. Uh, he knew to, how to have a punch-up. Um, there's a story that someone came to find him in a bar and kill him, and he said, oh, that's a nice pistol on you. I, I must have a look. So he checked the pistol, um, changed the chamber, rotated the chamber so it was on an empty empty chamber. And uh, when the guy actually lined up his pistol to shoot Billy the Kid, it just went click, and Billy the Kid then shot the guy with his own pistol. So those are the things that fed into the myth and the legend. And it was helped by what we've mentioned before, the, 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 the sort of competition 
and the violence and the sort of almost sort of low-level war that was going on between the ranchers and law enforcement. The fact that sometimes the US Army would come out against the law enforcement officials, um, siding with people called the regulators and the militias, and then they would be fighting the, 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 the local law officers in the area who were essentially on the take. And what happened, John Tunstall was killed by the local sheriff, William Brady, who happened to be working uh, or in league with a rival ranch. And that really started the, 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 the Lincoln County War, the, which, which became extremely violent. There, there was a lot of ambushes, a lot of killings. In the end, Billy the Kid, who, who had been this bodyguard of Tunstall, was implicated in the killing of Brady, of Sheriff Brady. And then there was the Lincoln War itself, the, 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 the war, the Battle of Lincoln, where different rival factions took over the town and had a shootout and saloons were firebombed fire and snipers were on the roof, people were killed and troops ended up having to be called. So this was the sort of violent environment in which Billy the Kid prospered and eventually became a fugitive, became it's, an outlaw. It's like one of those playground rows, isn't it, where, you know, someone says, you're an outlaw. No, you're an outlaw. You're an outlaw. Yeah, it was yeah, very grey. Basically, everyone was outlawing everyone else. Yes, it was grey murky. And, and it's amazing how many sheriffs were up on murder charges. <laughs> it's absolutely extraordinary. Or, or who were ambushed and killed by rival factions or by rival sheriffs. And Billy the Kid was uh, killed himself. He was eventually killed himself. Pat Garrett had this obsession with tracking him down. We've mentioned this. And, and there were several encounters, several firefights when Billy the Kid managed to escape. But eventually he was caught, sentenced to hang, escaped again, killed two deputies. So Pat Garrett, I think, decided, right, I'm just going to kill him. So turned up and shot him down inside uh, the ranch of a friend of Billy the Kid. So in Fort Sumner in New Mexico. So, so that was the end of, of Billy the Kid. The young gun. He died at the age of 21. It, 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 a bit like highwaymen. They, they, all gladiators. They didn't, they didn't last very long. And the other man, which we've mentioned already, but we need to finish off, is Jesse James, who was eventually killed in 1872. Another thug and another outlaw who entered legend. He was born, really, from the Confederacy. Uh, we talked about the Centralia train massacre, of his working with uh, Bloody Bill Anderson. And they were incredibly violent. I mean, when Bill Anderson was retreating from Centralia with his men, he invaded a lot of towns. And there was rape, looting, uh, torture... Uh, he got into uh, the town of Glasgow in Missouri and 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 uh, you know tortured a local businessman to to try and uh, get money from him. He, they, they, this is how they behaved. And when Jesse James established the uh, James Younger Gang, uh, th they went on behaving like that. They they liked the publicity. They ranged far and wide. I mean, it wasn't just Missouri in which he operated. They, it was really around Little Dixie and way across the Deep South. And they did about two robberies a year. It was trains. It was post offices, banks. Uh, it was city fairs. So, so 
they didn't mind having a crowd and they didn't mind gunning people down in cold blood. Brutal. And again, the clan comes into it, doesn't it? Yes, I think we mentioned that, that he, he wasn't averse to dressing as a clansman when he robbed a train. And he wasn't averse to doing barbaric deeds in front in front of others. Um, he actually shot a man thinking that that man had been the Union soldier who had killed uh, Anderson during the Civil War. So he, he didn't mind um, having a vendetta, that's for sure. He managed to have a rather more uh, long-term career than Billy the Kid. He did. He, he evaded the law for over a decade, and, but eventually... He was he was killed by his own gang members, so it, it it wasn't going to end pleasantly for someone like like Jesse James. And of course, we have Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was a great movie. I'm sure they weren't nearly as nice as they are portrayed in that particular film. And it's funny how names are acquired. I mean, Butch Cassidy became Butch. He was actually Robert Parker, but he, he Robert Lee Parker, but he became Butch because he he was he worked for a time in a butcher's shop. So there was nothing. <laughs> you know, there was a, 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 a bit like uh, Captain Thunderbolt in Australia. Uh, you know, the, the 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 Bush Rangers, the Bushwhackers in uh, in America had the same sort of thing. The same sort of legends grew up. But was that the newspapers, or were they? Did they? No, I think that was a nickname. They had that, their own Butch Cassidy, yeah. uh, Butch Cassidy acquired, and in the same way that Sundance Kid. I mean, he was just uh, Harry Longable. So uh, those names sort of developed, and they 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 had the wild bunch. They 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 were very good at uh, avoiding um, the law for a bit. They yeah, so they held up uh, rail, the railroad. They held up banks. Um, they had a reputation for killing people and eventually, because things were getting too hot for them, they escaped down to Argentina and eventually Bolivia. But you can see how they were really the last of the outlaws, of the outlaw legends. And one of the reasons that I think Bonnie and Clyde, who are nothing more than psychopaths and highway murderers, were dubbed outlaws and put in the same bracket, was that America was desperate to keep that legend alive, to keep that Wild West legend alive, even into the 1930s. Whereas they were more just psychopaths and serious natural-born killers. Yeah, they were depression psychopaths, basically. (laughs) Again, like all those other outlaws, they didn't have a happy end. We mentioned their end when we did the introduction, in that they were gunned down by Bolivian cavalry, so they messed up down there as well annoyed the law enforcement agencies down there. And to finish off our American outlaws, we bow out with Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie Chestnut Parker and Clyde Barrow. They killed nine lawmen among the 11 they killed on their their spree between sort of 1932 and 1934. And they became legends in their own right. Uh, All these outlaws had to have a gang, they had to have a backup. But of course, because you're dealing with criminals, because you're dealing with unreliable people, someone is always going to be a snitch, someone's always going to give information. You never know who's going to be in contact with the law or leave a clue behind. And so the the net always closes in. So in 1934, they met their death in an ambush. 
Yes, and it certainly wasn't romantic. Apparently it was total cacophony and the lawmen who killed them were deafened for a day after that. I mean, it was, it was very loud and very bloody and there wasn't much left of their car. Or them. OK, in this last section before our postscript, um, we're going to talk about bounty hunters, really a natural extension of the outlaw. I'm looking for Josie Wales. That'll be me. You're wanted, Wales. I reckon I'm right popular. You a bounty hunter? Yeah, he's got to do something for a living these days. Diane ain't much of a living, boy. Again, they came out of that sort of strange uh, miasma, that strange grey area between law and the illegal, between the outlaw and the law enforcement, because so many cross sides all all the time, and the bounty hunters often cross sides. If you take uh, a bounty hunter group called the Dunn Brothers, who were the late 19th century, they were very successful, but they had started as rustlers, and the five brothers decided, oh, we can actually make money by claiming bounty, by hunting down outlaws. And they did well. I mean, they killed two of uh, Butch Cassidy's wild bunch. They led a sheriff to another uh, Butch Cassidy gang member's hideout. Um, They claimed the bounty, but the sheriff said that he shot him. So there was that argument going on as well. So you got people like the Dunn brothers, you got law enforcement people who, 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 who were also hunting and creating posses. You got ad hoc groups forming. I mean, we've talked about the gunfight at the OK Corral, and you, you saw that happening. I mean, that, that was in Arizona, but uh, at Tombstone. And... You know, that was a firefight between, again, different factions and different law enforcement groups. So it, 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 you never quite knew who was on the right side at any given time, any, any given moment. And as the outlaw is essentially someone who doesn't have the protection of the law in the classical sense, anyone could go after them. But it's the usual thing, a sort of professionalisation of well, I'm not going to go out after him because I'm not trained in this way. Let's get somebody who knows how to use a gun, and that's probably someone else's outlaw. Yes, it's quite interesting that it was 1873 that the American government allowed bounty hunters, basically brought bounty hunters into the the legal system, made them part of the professionalised legal system, saying, you can go out on our behalf. And and, and that's essentially what, what exists today. But obviously, it tended to be far more violent back then uh, in terms of what was going on. You then got people like Pat Garrett, a sheriff, who, who ended up being made a deputy um, US Marshal, and that allowed him to cross county boundaries to, to hunt these gangs who, who were hunt Billy the Kid, but but other groups as well, who were cattle rustling and moving between different states. To avoid the local law enforcement? To dodge? Completely. And when you see that Jesse James just covered so many states with his with his robberies with what he what he did you needed to have marshals that 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 could that could cross state boundaries that could could follow these people 
at the same time, we've got the tensions. Well, in fact, before that, the tensions of the Civil War and prior to that, even before the Civil War, the, um, the Slave Hunting Acts, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Completely, the Bloodhound Bill, as it was known, because they used bloodhounds to, to patrol uh, and and to hunt down the escaped slaves, which you, is what John is incensed John Brown so much. Exactly, and 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 you got these patrollers. I mean, that, uh, in fact, the, they were nicknamed Paddy Rollers. And again, there's that sort of allusion to the Irish ancestry of so many of of the guys who settled in 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 the South and and who pushed out across the Old West as well. I mean, there were a lot of Irish involved. So the paddy rollers, the patrollers, would go out and, and, and hunt fugitive slaves and get rewarded by the plantation owners for bringing them back. Oh, those naughty um, Irish Democrats. What are we going to do with them? <laughs> there is a history. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but but everyone rewrites their history. Everyone writes uh, rewrites their their personal curriculum vitae, and certainly a lot of these outlaws did. And Hollywood has rewritten them as well. So so you know, but but the, the antebellum slave hunters certainly fed into that outlaw myth and produced a lot of these outlaws later on. And, and we talked about the American Civil War. The, from chaos comes the, the, the semblance of order and the semblance of chaos. You get these two, two things colliding. And bounty hunting exists in America today. You still get bail enforcement agents and fugitive recovery agents. And that is a dangerous role as well. They're not allowed to do... the. The same sort of things that the original. Um, the poster doesn't uh, still say dead or alive. No, it doesn't, and they're allowed to fire, but only in self-defence, and mm. they're allowed to to be armed. But but you don't get that that sort of outlaw hunting, that bounty hunting of of old. It's it's a, a little more um, uh, prescribed. It's a little more uh, within the system. And it's not quite so gung-ho, but it's still based on a reward. I think a lot of them work on a commission basis, bail bond commission. And uh, apparently it's between 10 and 20%, but I'm sure that's negotiable. And there's that great bail bondsman movie, Jackie Brown, an early Tarantino, which if you haven't seen, you should. And it's based on one of my favourite American authors, Elmore Leonard. There you go. And Tom and I are available as bounty hunters in our bowler hats <laughs> to go Bal on the Baldy, trail. Baldy and the blind man. <laughs> That's our gang. <laughs> yeah, I think we'd be killed in a shootout pretty damn quick. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think they'd be so distracted they might just surrender. <laughs> Well, Jamie, we, we made it to the postscript. And the postscript, we're going to talk about motorcycle clubs. We're going to talk about them because they see themselves as outlaws. They see themselves as, as part of the counterculture, as part of those on the outside of orthodox society. And they go back a long way. Um, the outlaws started in the 1930s. And so many of these groups are seen by the law enforcement bodies such as the FBI and the Justice Department as, as a threat, as a criminal threat. And they're seen as conduit for criminality. And that is the reputation they have. 
Do you think that there's no chance then of me me joining now that I've sold my old Harley and have resorted to a uh, a slightly younger BMW. Yeah, they would. They 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 wouldn't even find the. <laughs> they would just tip me into a ditch. They wouldn't even find the leather jacket. <laughs> Funny enough, I mean the groups. The, my the, my motorbike gang. We have to wear corduroy jackets. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but but the, but the gangs that you see, the motorbike gangs that grew from the thirties, late forties, fifties, sixties. Uh, such as the Outlaws, the Hells Angels, the Pagans, the Bandidos, the Warlocks, the warlocks uh, you know, all these groups that came out. Uh, they say, I mean, the American Motorcycle Association said, oh, um, you know, 99% of our members uh, aren't criminal, but quite a lot of these these gangs, so quite a lot of these groups, uh, where 1% flashes, saying that we're the 1% who are criminal. And so many of the members of many of these gangs have, have ended up in prison or been killed by other gangs um, because they're so involved in, in taking drugs around the place. I mean, up on the, across the Canadian border, for example, it's, it's, it's very useful to have a motorbike. So... You know the the outlaws have a have a saying called adios, which is angels die in outlaw states. So you can see there is this tension. There you don't is, want to get kebabbed by an acronym. Uh, you you certainly or run over by an acronym. You certainly don't. But but like the outlaws of old, you can see that creating a gang, giving giving it a name, um, being on the outside of the law, having your own own rules, and keeping to yourselves. That legend, that tradition continues. And, of course, our Russian friends have a, a particularly uh, pleasant motorcycle club. Well, the Nightwolves, funny enough, they, they are the antithesis uh, of outlaws because they are part, really, of the Russian state. They've been Does that used... make them in-laws? <laughs> <laughs> Probably don't. Putin's a, in-laws. Yeah, they're oh, about, no. as, about <laughs> as deadly and as unwanted. <laughs> but they're, but But... but you know, the Nightwolves we've mentioned several times before, but they were certainly used as paramilitary groups, as enforcers. They went into the Crimea. They the little green men. 20, they were part of the little green men. In 2014, uh, Putin visited uh, the Crimea in triumph uh, on a trike um, with fellow Nightwolves, and it's still run by the surgeon, their, their gang boss, their leader, and they run quote-unquote, rock festivals in Russia. So they have a reputation, and whether it's the Nightwolves there or the Hells Angels at the 1969 Altamont Festival where someone was stabbed, people were beaten with pool cues, uh, there is that still that undercurrent of violence, that undercurrent of unease when they roll into town. And so people are wary. And th that, so that is the modern outlaw. Well, perhaps when Putin finally has his comeuppance, he'll have to ride off into the towards the horizon with the night wolves. Can you can you get a casket on a on a on a trike? Uh, one of those bikes, no problem. Side casket <laughs> instead of a sidecar. <laughs> uh, well there you go. There you have it. This is the bull bandit and the blind man, outlaws of South London, signing off and heading for the hills. Thank you, Jamie. Where am I? So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, this has been Bloody Violent History. Please check our website, 
bloodyviolenthistory.com and you can email me on talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.